Well, I would invite you to open your Bible with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. Yesterday marked one year that our founding and senior pastor, Tom Leake, has been in heaven. In light of that, we're going to break from our study in Titus to study a passage of scripture that will direct our thoughts to how we should remember those who led us, but who are no longer with us. And no matter what your relationship was with Pastor Leake, whether you knew him or not, I trust this message will minister to us and point us all to Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, the text for today is verses 7 to 14. Please follow along as I read. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by various and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through whom those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who receive the tabernacle, who serve the tabernacle, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The word of God is inerrant, authoritative, infallible, and sufficient. In his infinite wisdom, the Holy Spirit has ensured that everything written in Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, contains everything we need to know God and to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. There is no situation where, where you can find yourself where the Word of God will not have something to say about how you are to think and respond or act. And the book of Hebrews in particular is written to a group of believers who are struggling They are immature in their faith, Uh, they're tempted by sin, they're oppressed by persecution, and because of the persecution, some of them are avoiding gathering with the rest of the saints, and many of them are tempted to return to Judaism. This is a church receiving this letter that has been harassed and harangued by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they are in need of encouragement and strength, and admonition. Now, we don't know who wrote this epistle, but verse 22, he calls this a word of exhortation, which he has written briefly. It's really a sermon in written form, and the main point of this sermon is to declare that Jesus Christ is supreme over the law, over Moses, over sacrifices, over the high priest, over everything. So, no matter what hardships we endure. It is worth it to follow Jesus because it's only through Him that the wrath of God has been satisfied. 
And it's only through Him that we can experience the hope of eternal life. Now, along the way throughout this letter, he aims to encourage these beleaguered saints by pointing them not only to Christ, but also to those who have come before as examples of obedience and endurance. Chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith because he walks through really the history of Israel, pointing out men and women who were models of faith. These were people who endured great hardship and endured and exhibited remarkable trust in the Lord in the face of daunting life circumstances and yet unfulfilled promises. In fact, in light of those examples, he says in chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author does there what he does in our text. He begins by pointing to the human examples of faithfulness that we can follow and imitate, and then ultimately he points us to Christ. And so on the occasion of the anniversary of Pastor Leek's promotion to glory, it seems appropriate to draw our attention to how the Spirit of God through the Word of God would want us to think about a beloved pastor whose faithfulness has had a deep impact on our life and obviously on our church. Now, many of us will have Pastor Leek in our minds as we walk through this text, but some of you may not have known Pastor Leek or may not have been here long enough to know him well. Most of us have had pastors in our past who modeled and exhibited for us faithfulness that we can observe in obvious ways and non-obvious ways, that where their ministry is imprinted on our lives because of how they serve the Lord. Some of them are with the Lord. Others might still be alive, but their influence in our life was in the distant past. But whatever the case, even if you're new to the faith and don't have a pastor in your mind, that you can be thinking about as we study verse 7 in particular, our text will point us all to Christ in verses 8 to 14 and His example that He set for us. You see, we're not meant to live the Christian life alone. Sometimes we try. We go to church. We say hello. But we don't engage in relationships. We don't take careful note of those who are living the Christian life. But God, in addition to giving us all of the commandments and standards and principles of His Word, He's also given us one another. And specifically, He's given us leaders, faithful men and women who have ministered to us and, and taught us and helped us know the way of the Lord, not just in their teaching, but also in their life, in their example. We are to observe the footprints of those who have come before us and to understand them and follow them and keep in step with them. So with that in mind, we're going to consider this text under two headings. The first heading is we are to imitate those who imitated Christ. Imitate those who imitated Christ. And secondly, imitate Christ with eternity in mind. 
The first heading, imitate those who imitated Christ, we'll see from verse 7. And then imitate Christ who are in light of eternity in verses 8 to 14. Let's begin with the first heading. Imitate those who imitated Christ. Look again at verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The scripture recognizes, not here but elsewhere, the propensity that sinners have to elevate leaders to a pedestal that they are unworthy of. Uh, the worst example that humans do is they deify their leaders. You might remember in Acts when Herod uh, was making a speech and the people were crying out, the voice of a God and not a man, and he was receiving worship. And because he didn't give God the glory, God killed him in that very moment. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, when they went to Lystra in Acts 14, the Lord used them to heal a man. And, and the people said, the gods have come down to us and become like men. The irony of what they were saying was Paul and Barnabas were actually there to proclaim to them the God who became a man. But they stopped them from offering the sacrifices and they proclaimed the one sacrifice already made by Jesus Christ, who was Emmanuel, God with us. And even without deifying men, even believers have struggled with elevating leaders down through the ages. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul rebukes that church about the divisions they were making among themselves based on their preferred leaders. He wrote, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now this I mean, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? All these men that the believers aligned themselves with were godly, faithful men. They, they taught the word of God and they ministered in the church. Uh, people came to Christ through their ministries and grew in Christ through their ministries. And, and so they gained the love and affection of the people. But Paul's point here is that it is wrong to align yourself to someone to the degree that the headship of Christ over his church is obscured. Now, we're not told why these people aligned themselves the way that they did. Was it that they just went with a leader that, that the Lord used to save them through their preaching? Was it they preferred their certain preaching styles? Uh, did they have the preferred opinions on non-biblical issues? We don't know. But whatever the case, Paul exhorts the Corinthian church to, to be of the same mind and the same judgment, which is that Jesus Christ is the only leader worthy of our allegiance. Now, elsewhere, as Paul aimed to lead people, he made it explicit that he should only be followed to the degree that he was following Christ. Uh, later there in 1 Corinthians, he said, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Here he presents himself as being in the position of having the greatest amount of influence in these believers' lives. 
It's like, there's a lot of people who can teach you about the Word of God, but I'm your spiritual father, so imitate me. And if you were to stop there, you would think, well, isn't Paul contradicting himself and what he said? Does, does he want the eye of Apollos or eye of a Paul, uh, everybody to come to his side? Well, then he goes on to say, for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, listen, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, it's only the aspects of Paul's life which are a reflection of Christ which are to be imitated. In fact, he even makes it more explicit later on in the letter where he says, be imitators of me just as also I am of Christ. What the Apostle Paul sets forth there in 1 Corinthians as the expectations of, of those who would come under him, the author of Hebrews teaches us should be true for anyone who is led by a faithful leader. Namely, that we should imitate those who imitated Christ. Now look specifically at verse 7 at who we are told to remember. Verse 7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Uh, the, The phrase, those who led you, is a generic phrase. That simply means those who had authority over you, those who governed you, those who guided you. Uh, But then he gets more specific when he says, who spoke the word of God to you. And so he's not talking about two different groups, those who were leaders and those who were speakers of God's word, but rather the specific leaders who spoke the word of God. Those who taught. In defining the specific leaders, he has in mind those who ministered the word of God. Now, the word spoke there is not, uh, does not mean to preach, uh, but rather those who ministered the word of God, those who preached, those who taught, those who proclaimed, those who ministered. It doesn't refer to those who only did it in public, but also to those who did it in private. The, uh, the author has in mind here church letter- leaders who ministered the word in a variety of ways and by implication whose ministry the Spirit used in our life to have meaningful influence. Now going back to Paul's example, he gave a farewell speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and he said this, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you privately, excuse me, publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then later on, he went on to say, therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So he uses the variety of words, declaring, teaching, publicly, house to house, admonishing with tears. Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus was not defined by preaching. It was defined by ministering the word in public and in private, in open areas and in homes, to groups and to individuals. And because of that full-orbed ministry, Paul was deeply loved, such that when he was departing from these Ephesian elders, they were weeping and hugging him and kissing him. 
Now, we can and should love people for all kinds of reasons, but those who bring the Word of God gain our affection in our affection, because we know that whatever benefits other people might bring to us, the Word of God is of eternal benefit. I can think of a number of men who I have a deep affection for, for no other reason than that the Lord used them in my life to have a deeper love for the Lord and His Word. So the people he's referring to here are not simply those who Uh, have helped us have an intellectual knowledge of God's Word such that now we can pass all kinds of Bible tests. But rather, it's that through their ministry, we came to know God. And we came to love God. We came to know God more deeply and see Christ in new and fresh ways. Maybe in some cases, we were like those who couldn't feed ourselves and those who spoke the Word of God to us fed us the Word in such a way that it increased our appetite and our hunger for God. And so were it not for them, we might still be languishing in disinterest and ignorance of the soul-satisfying Word of God. But because of them, we're now able to feast on the Word of God ourselves. The Holy Spirit says here in verse 7 that it is right and appropriate to remember such men, to to call them to mind and to think about them. But we're to do this not for just any purpose, not simply for the sake of a memorial, but rather for a practical purpose. Look what he says next. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, Imitate their faith. The language here implies that these leaders we are to remember are those who have finished the race set before them. They've persevered to the end, and now they're in glory with Christ, who is their reward. The ESV probably has it a little bit better here. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And the verb considering there is a participle, which in this context tells us how we are to go about remembering. We don't just remember and call to mind, but we think specifically as we're remembering, we are to remember and consider the outcome of their way of life. In the words of Galatians 6, we are to think about how they sowed to the Spirit and thus reaped eternal life. We're to think about how they persevered to the end without giving up. Now, Hebrews is written somewhere in the late 60s A.D., a time when there was increased persecution. And so it's quite likely that these leaders, from the perspective of the author in this church, are not leaders who retired and died of old age. They're probably not leaders who died of sickness, but rather leaders who died a martyr's death. And so because of that, it makes sense why the author of Hebrews would call these believers to remember their leaders. Throughout the letter, the Spirit is encouraging and urging and exhorting and warning these believers to persevere, to keep the faith, to endure hardship, to reject temptation, to return to their old religion. And here he points to their leaders and said, they persevered to the end. Look at how they did that and imitate them. He directs their attention to men who ministered to them and modeled faithfulness to the very end of their lives, no matter the cost and the suffering they experienced. 
So we can extrapolate from this that we can observe in our mind's eye the faithful example and ministry of our former leaders and see the fruitfulness of that ministry. But we can also observe how they handled uh, challenges and suffering. And while there are a variety of things we could probably replicate from our former leaders, he tells us specifically what it is we are to imitate. And that is, as you see in verse 7, we are to imitate their faith. When one looks at the history of God's people in Scripture, uh, the way that the Lord appoints leaders and replaces them with other leaders is instructive to us. Uh, We can see men like Moses and then Joshua or the judges and the prophets, uh, Saul and David and then Solomon, and you can just go down the line of history. And you can see that it would be impossible for subsequent leaders to do exactly and precisely what the previous leaders did, to, in a sense, have a handed down how-to manual or processes and goals that are all the same. Except, of course, where such principles of life are universally laid out in Scripture. Every leader in a per- leads in a particular context at a particular time and with their God-given abilities. And, and so it's good and right for one leader. What is good and right for one leader may not be good and right for future leaders. Now, the Lord used Moses to get out of Egypt and serve as, the, serve as the supreme magistrate of Israel while they wandered in the desert for 40 years but he used a different leader with different abilities to conquer the land. David was a man of war whom the Lord used to conquer Israel's enemies and in a sense create a time of peace. And and so Solomon was not a man of war, but rather a, a king of peace whom the Lord used to prosper the nation. The Lord used apostles to plant churches and spread the gospel all around the known world, but then he used pastors and teachers in those churches to mature believers and continue to evangelize the local areas. It's a natural human instinct for us to love our leaders and to think that this is the leader I need for the rest of my life. But the Lord appoints leaders according to His own timetable and for His own purposes. If you think about it, Jesus came to proclaim the gospel, uh, to put God on display, and to... die a substitutionary death. The disciples thought this is who we need the rest of our lives. Jesus needs to stay with us and we just need to follow him to the end. But Jesus knew that it would be better for them if he left because he needed to send the Holy Spirit to do what he himself couldn't do. The reality is why God chooses to use certain people at certain times for limited times and purposes really can't be known until multiple chapters have been written in history. And then subsequent generations can look back and see what God was doing through all of those changes and movements. And so rather than make Joshua lead like Moses or make Solomon fight like David or Elisha take on the false prophets like Elijah. We should focus on how each leader manifested faith in God and imitate 
their faith. Again, as you look back to chapter 11, we see examples of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Rahab and many others who exhibited great faith in the Lord and served the Lord according to his purposes for them in their life. And it's their manifestation of faith, the the fundamental faith that drove their actions, that is a blessing to us to see and imitate. In fact, go back to chapter 11. Just flip back a couple pages. Let me just point out a couple of these. Verse 13 of chapter 11. He writes, All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were aliens and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, there were many people who, in their particular circumstances, in their particular lives, they followed God and served God in a certain way. But what drove them was the fact that they were looking for an eternal city, not for things here on earth. Or consider verse 19. Speaking of Abraham, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. God doesn't call any one of us to take our son up to a mountain and sacrifice him. So we can't imitate Abraham's expression of faith or the outward manifestation of it, but we can look at the fundamental faith that Abraham had in God, that no matter what God asks us to do, that God is powerful, that God can do the impossible, and we can trust in the Lord like Abraham trusted in the Lord. Or look at verse 27 regarding Moses. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Or go back to verse 26. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses made decisions not based on what was comfortable, what was easy, what would bring the most wealth, but rather what was eternal. And so we can't imitate Moses in the decisions he made, but we can imitate the fundamental trust and faith he had in the Lord. And when you think about all of these individuals that are listed, there's a lot in their lives that it would be sinful to imitate. And there are some things in their lives that were just impossible to imitate because of their particular circumstances. And so what we're given as as worthy of imitation is the fundamental trust in the Lord and His promises that undergirded their faith-filled decisions. And so, in the same way, as we reflect on our leaders, those who spoke the Word of God to us, our thoughts should be directed at the ways in which they modeled walking by faith and not by sight. Now you can't hear the story of Hope Bible Church and not be amazed at how Pastor Leek led the church in making great steps of faith. Whether it was starting the church to begin with, buying this building, or a multitude of decisions in between. 
as a local church, we are all beneficiaries of a man who loved Christ and wanted to accomplish great things for Christ. And by God's grace, he did. Not because of his own work, but because God blessed his expression and his trust and his faith-filled life. But Acts says in 13, Acts 13.36, For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. Our leaders, just like us, serve the purposes of God in their generation. And in God's mysterious providence, he calls us home to let other leaders and accomplish God's purposes for them in their generation. The danger that subsequent generations have is that the faithfulness of our forefathers is replaced with an attitude of caution and assurances and doing only what makes sense from a human perspective. But what the Holy Spirit calls us to do in this text is to look at the fundamental trust in the Lord that our former leaders had and how they persevered in their life of faith and to embrace that same kind of faith-filled living. Because God's not going to do the same thing in the second generation that He did in the first generation. His kingdom marches on and His purposes uh, are revealed. There are new missions. There are new opportunities. There are new fields of harvest. And so Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted and Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul is reflecting the reality there that every servant of the Lord serves God's unique purposes at their time and in their season. And so we ought to rejoice and imitate the faithful example of those servants of Christ who modeled faith-filled ministry. And we must remember that the foundation of everything and our ultimate model is Jesus Christ himself. And that's where Paul goes, excuse me, that's where the, the author goes next in our text. We are to imitate those who imitated Christ. And secondly, we are to imitate Christ with eternity in mind. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. There are two main problems with human leaders. We all sin and we all die. It's been well said that the best of men are men at best. And so the author of Hebrews does what he's been doing throughout this whole letter, and that is he points us back to Christ. And so no matter who our leaders were, no, we, we don't, even if we don't have anyone that we can point to in our life because we're so new to the faith, we can always look to Christ 
who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In His nature, Jesus never changes. He who was in eternity past is He who was when He walked on the earth. And that is He who is interceding for us even now. And that is who He will be with us forever on the new earth. He is immutable. He doesn't change. So we can look to Him as our supreme model of faithfulness and endurance, no matter the cost to His life. And then what follows then in verses 9 to 14 on the surface feels like a random change of subject, but it's actually quite on point with what we read in verse 7. The the principle of verse 7 that we are to imitate leaders who marked out for us what it means to, to live by faith, that is the same principle that is being taught here in verses 9 to 14. In fact, look at verses 12 to 14 for the conclusion. He said, Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The issue we need to think about is, how do we go from verse 7 of imitating those who imitated Christ to verse 9 where it says, don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. And then later on, to going out to Jesus outside the camp bearing His reproach in verse 13. If you were to put all of those points on a pin board, those pins would not line up, at least on the surface. Well, let's read the whole of verses 9 to 14, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. The Spirit says, Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the whole high priest is uh, as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And you can see the connection there to chapter 11, that we have the same kind of faith as Old Testament saints. Now, as we consider this passage, it's critical to understand a a number of things from the sacrificial system in the Mosaic law that the author refers to here. In the Old Covenant, the Levitical tribe, the Levites, were those whom God had chosen to serve Him uh, by serving the people as basically mediators. They were the priests. They were the religious leaders. And they did not have their own um, inheritance, but rather they were to be focused on serving and worshiping God and taking care of the sacrifices, managing the tabernacle and later the temple. And one of the ways that God provided for them physically was they could eat from the sacrifices that were being brought by the people. But there was one sacrifice from which these Levites were not allowed to eat, and that is the sacrifice made on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 verse 27 says, The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, 
The flesh is what normally would be eaten and their refuse in the fire. That's what the author of Hebrews refers to in verse 11 when he says the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. He's referring to Leviticus 16 verse 27. So on that one annual sacrifice where the sins of the people as a nation were being atoned for, when, that, when those sacrifices were brought in, the priests could not eat of that sacrifice. It had no benefit to the priests. So get this in your mind. In the normal course of life, the Levitical priests would eat from and benefit from the sacrifices that were made but they were not to benefit, they could not eat from the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement because those bodies of those animals had to be burned outside the camp. Now, one other historical note of significance is that as Israel was wandering around in the desert, uh, God in, uh, commanded that inside the camp was to be the place of purity, the place of cleanliness, And so anything impure, anything unclean had to be taken outside the camp, whether it's refuse, whether it's carcasses. If someone got unclean, ceremonial or ritually, according to the law, if there was sickness, they had to go outside of the camp until they were clean again. And so it became that outside the camp was the place of shame and reproach. Now, with that in mind, let's walk through this one verse at a time to unpack this tent, this text. Look at again at verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. As these Jewish believers were persecuted, they were tempted in, in a variety of ways to go back to the Jewish system, the Mosaic law, which of course included the dietary laws. And so it's probable that some of the tempting thoughts that they would have would go something like, if you would only eat uh, the things that are limited by the Mosaic law, then life would get easy. Your, Your family would stop persecuting you. Your fellow citizens would stop harassing you. Just eat what you're supposed to eat according to the law. There may have been a perception that strength would come from eating the foods that God had commanded. The phrase there, those who were so occupied, simply refers to those who lived their lives in strict adherence to the law. And they believed that law-keeping is what kept them strong, what enabled them to, to live. And the reality is, as they kept the law, they kept other people off their backs. Society was totally happy with those who kept the law in, in the Jewish context. But there was no actual spiritual benefit to keeping the law, eating only the foods prescribed in the Old Testament and avoiding the foods that God forbade in the Mosaic law had no spiritual benefit. And so the author says, the food doesn't strengthen you, but rather it is good to be strengthened by grace, by grace. Throughout the letter, he's made the case that Christ is greater than sacrifices, greater than Moses, greater than the old covenant. He's taught that Christ is the great high priest. And so the grace that we receive from Christ actually strengthens us. It strengthens the soul, unlike food, which is expelled and doesn't have any spiritual benefit. And so in verse 10, he says, we have an altar 
from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. There are two altars referred to here. The Christian altar, which is the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, and the Jewish altar, which is located in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Those who serve the tabernacle and thus have the right to eat of the sacrifices have no right to eat of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. His all-sufficient sacrifice can only be benefit, can be of a benefit to those who believe in the gospel, to those who trust and follow Christ. When a priest would eat of the meat of the sacrifice, it would benefit him for a few hours, maybe a day. But when we partake of Christ, that is of eternal benefit. And so to further show the distinction between the the two altars and the two sacrifices, he says there in verses 11 and 12, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. He focuses his distinction here on the location of the sacrifices. The sacrifice made on, in the Old Covenant on the Day of Atonement was made within the boundaries of the tabernacle. The blood was brought into the holy place, but then the carcasses were taken outside the camp, the place where trash was burned. As I mentioned, that was the place of uncleanness, the place of shame. But Jesus' sacrifice was not part of the Old Covenant. There was no provision in the Mosaic Law for the once-for-all sacrifice that one could make for the sin of God's people. And so providentially, Jesus was crucified outside the city gates in part to show that his sacrifice was not part of the old covenant, but rather was inaugurating the new covenant. It was done outside the city, which was the old covenant place of shame. And so, yes, anyone who lives according to the old covenant, they're going to look at Christ and say, that is a shameful man. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews because they don't understand how a man crucified outside the city could be a savior. That's an invalid sacrifice. It's not made in the temple. Jesus is a reproach to those who think they can be right with God based on what they eat and what they kill by food and ceremony. So if you're going to follow Christ, You need to expect that just as Jesus is reproached and shamed by those who follow the old covenant, that you will experience that same reproach yourself. You shouldn't be surprised. Verse 13. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but seek we are seeking the city which is to come. This language of imitating Christ, going out to Christ, following in his footsteps, uh, is the same as what we read in verse 7 of imitating those who lived a life of faith. And it's consistent with other passages like 1 Peter 2, which we read at the end of 1 Peter 2. I'll read it again. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges 
righteously. Jesus suffered as a continual act of faith and trust in the Father. And by doing that, He modeled for us, He he paved the path for us to follow. Jesus Himself said in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before I hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love its own. But because you are not of the world, I I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So how can we endure hardship and persecution and difficulties like Christ? Well, we do it, according to verse 14, by having an eternal perspective. By remembering that we have an eternal home and this earth is not it. No matter what hardships, what suffering, what difficulties, what conflicts, what misrepresentations, what false accusations come against us in this lifetime, we have a billion lifetimes and more to enjoy the glory of Christ The trials in this life should serve to strengthen our faith and increase our hope and loosen our grip in this world. Temporary reproach and hardship is bearable in light of eternal glory. And so in closing, writing to these persecuted Hebrew believers, the author reminds them that following, being a follower of Christ is a life of reproach and a life of persecution. And when we face hardship, rather than floundering around trying to figure out why is, hard, why is life becoming so hard, and rather than succumbing to temptation to reject Christ, there are two places we can look. We can look to our leaders who followed Christ themselves, endured to the end, and modeled for us faithful living. And we can look to Christ who suffered for us, taking our sin upon Himself, whose death benefits us as the once-for-all sacrifice that never needs to be repaid. We can gain strength and courage and hope by looking to faithful leaders and our faithful Lord. That's the enduring benefit of faithful leaders, that we can imitate those who've gone before us as they themselves imitated Christ with an eternal perspective. Again, many of you can think back to many ways in which Pastor Lee demonstrated great faith as he pastored this church and led this church for 24 years. There were many times when he led the charge in moving in directions and making decisions that didn't make any earthly sense because the outcome was not assured and the money didn't exist. There were times when he persevered through strong opposition And especially in his last few years, he lived a life of faithful endurance through the debilitating cancer that he had. He would have been the first one to tell anyone that he was not a perfect man, but he walked by faith and he trusted the Lord for great things in the most uncertain circumstances. And we are here now as beneficiaries of his great faith. Now, some of you are newer to the church and you didn't know him at all 
or at least not very well, but perhaps you have another pastor in your life that you can think back on who modeled for us faith-filled living. But whether or not you have someone in your mind that you can think about and imitate their faith, we can all look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme example of faith-filled obedience. Go back to chapter 12. Um, and we'll close with verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. From the perspective of the cross, Jesus believed that the Father's promise of a redeemed people would be fulfilled. He trusted that the Father would accept his sacrifice. He did not allow the the pain and the incessant mocking of the crowds to deter him from a complete confidence in the Father's faithfulness. And so he entrusted himself to the righteous judge and gave up his life with full faith in the Father. If Jesus could live a life of faith despite the shame of the cross, and if our leaders could imitate Christ's life of faith by themselves living out faith in their life, then we too should imitate their faith-filled example as they imitated Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have done so already, we just want to continue to, to give you praise and thanks because we know, as your word says, that you are the one who gives faith. You grant to us repentance and your spirit awakens our souls, enabling us to believe. And so our faith is not a work that makes us pleasing to you, but rather it is a gift from you. And and yet you still call us to cultivate that faith and to exercise it and to live it out. And so our hearts are full of thanks as we can look back to Pastor Leek and others who did that in such profound ways. A man who was weak in his body in his last few years and yet who was strong in his soul because he had you on his heart and his mind all the time. He had eternity in his heart. Lord, help us as the people of God to be full of faith and trust in you. We don't know the future, just as Tom didn't know the future, but we know you, and you are a faithful God in whom we can trust. So help us to grow in manifesting that trust by serving you faithfully no matter the cost. In Christ's name, amen.